Unlocking the Book of Colossians. Tonight's study will be an introductory study, but I want to begin the entire study by reading uh, a single verse in Colossians 2. Colossians 2 verse 8. Now you might consider this to be a rather strange verse to read. But as I understand the context, there's a sense in which this verse is the key verse of the entire book. So, Colossians 2 verse 8, Paul exhorts these first century Christians, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather down Christ. I'll read it one more time. It's so important. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. In the year that I was born a most excellent year, it has to be said. 1964. Yes, indeed, for some. A certain Bob Dylan released a song. And the song was called The Times, They Are A-Changing. Indeed, The Times, They Are A-Changing. Now, I can't speak for the 1960s, but his sentiments certainly ring true today. In these early years of the 21st century, brethren, the times, they are changing. In my native Liverpool, I well remember how my parents would wax lyrical about the golden decades as they saw them. The 1950s and 1960s. When you could leave your front door open without fear of reprisal. And I'm sure many of us here can remember those days well. My mum used to joke that if someone had broken into her house in Speak in Liverpool and had a look around, they would leave a pound on the mantelpiece for my grandmother (laughs) before leaving (laughs) empty-handed. It was that kind of place. Today, however, how times have changed. Security is tight. Everything has to be tacked down. Everything has to be locked up. And most of us, let's be honest, have alarms on our houses and elsewhere. The times, they are changing. People look at the world differently these days. Scholars maintain that we are moving from a period of modernity to a period of post-modernity. I don't intend to major upon this dynamic post-modernity because for the most part I find it a slippery term to define. However, whatever post-modernity is, the results of it are plain for every one of us to see. At life's genesis, 
We tolerate nearly 200,000 abortions a year in the United Kingdom. This is what post-modernity looks like. At life's exodus, there's a growing call for the legislation of euthanasia. Mercy killing. Brethren, this is what post-modernity looks like. We have a rampant crime rate. We have huge problems with drugs and alcohol abuse. And friends, did you know, as I was reading this last week, that the porn industry has a larger dollar turnover in the United States of America than tobacco, alcohol and drugs combined? This is post-modernity. Here in the United Kingdom, we have one of the highest divorce rates in the world. And what is especially sad for the thoughtful, meditative Christian is that we are seeing many of these problems surfacing within the confines of the church. Statistically, the church seems to be little better than the world within which she is placed. We seem to be living in a moral and spiritual vacuum. And because both nature and grace abhor vacuums, all manner of alternative spiritualities have been sucked into the vacuum that the Christian gospel used to fill. Here in the United Kingdom. I will remember my childhood trips to Woolworths in Prescott, in Merseyside. It was a special treat that always culminated in the famous Woolworths Pick and Mix sweet store. Once a month we would go there and we were given 10 bob for Pick and Mix. What's the month, mind? Has, that ten bob, ten bob worth of sweets had to last a month. I learned many disciplines, actually. I learned how to, how to keep ten bobs worth of sweets for an entire month. All down to budgeting one sweets. My father was cute, you see. He said, Sonny, you can budget sweets now. You can budget your finances in the future. He's quite sharp, my old man. Bless him. Pick and mix. <laughs> Today, we may have lost Woolworths. The times are changing. But folks still engage in a kind of pick and mix. Because now they pick and mix their beliefs. Truth? Well... Truth is what is true for me. At least what I feel to be true today for tomorrow, I might feel differently. And truth for you is what is true for you. At least today how you feel, because tomorrow you might feel differently. Consequently, therefore, there is no absolute truth. Everything has become relative. Everything 
has become interpretational. Everything has become contextualised. Everything has become politically correct. And so our world has become, I'm going to use one of those theological expressions, polytheistic. The belief of many gods. And also our world has become pluralistic. The belief that there are many ways to God and many ways to behave and many ways to live. Hold on to those two words because they are key to our understanding of the epistle to the Colossian church. So today our world, this post-modern society, has become polytheistic and it has become pluralistic. The Apostle Paul also lived in a world that was riddled with both polytheism and pluralism. The early Christians faced many of the same kinds of problems that we're facing today. Wasn't King Solomon so right when he said that there is nothing new under the sun? Two thousand or so years on, and it seems that in reality, nothing has changed. When we consider the first century church in Colossae, the main problem appears to be what scholars call syncretism. Another fancy word. I hope you're writing these words down. Syncretism. Syncretism maintains, ostensibly, that yes, you can have Jesus, but also, alongside Jesus, you can have a few other spiritual masters or mistresses too. It's fine. It is a little like buying a car that isn't top of the range. The salesman tempts you to add a little extra to your, to your bottom of the range car. Add a satellite navigation system. Add alloy wheels. Cruise control. Air conditioning. And so you add to your basic model as you go along. You take some things, maybe leave other things out, and maybe plan to come back to other things in the future. That's how it was within the confines of society in Colossae in the first century. This attitude of syncretism. The question for the Colossian church was, is Jesus Christ sufficient in a world full of myth and magic? Or did they need to supplement to their faith by going to other powers and other authorities? They could have Jesus, but, but, but was he enough for them? Did they need something else? If someone was sick, should their friends pray over the sick person in the name of Jesus? But also go to the local shaman or the local witch doctor for help as well. And so ensure that some incantation was intoned over the friend, just in case Jesus didn't show up. In Colossae, Jesus was eminent. Jesus had status, no question. But the real question was, 
Was he preeminent? Jesus in Colossae was important. The real question was, was he all important? Jesus in Colossae was adequate. The real question is, was he totally sufficient for every need? Plagued with these question marks, the Apostle Paul was writing to a church that was tempted with and drawn towards a syncretistic mindset. Good to have Jesus, but just in case, I have a little bit of this over there. Just in case, I have a little bit of that over there. Just in case, I'll hold on to my, my, my old traditional beliefs and attitudes and mindsets. Just in case. That was a real problem. I'll put it to you, it's becoming an increasing problem for the Christian church today. How we say, do we not? Jesus is my all-sufficiency. Jesus is preeminent in my life. But is he? Because just in case we hear Christians holding on to this teaching or embracing that mindset or falling back to all traditions. Mahatma Gandhi once said, I quote, I cannot ascribe exclusive divinity to Jesus. He is as divine as Krishna or Rama or Muhammad or Zarosta. Jesus in these instances, therefore, becomes a comparative. He compares well. And the sad thing is, if we're not careful, he can become a comparative today. He compares well. This was the kind of problem here in Colossae. Jesus was a comparative, not a superlative. He was more, but he wasn't all. So this is why Paul writes to these Colossian Christians. He is warning them of the very real danger involved in turning to another Jesus who is less than the Jesus of the Bible, the Son of the living God. If they fail to heed the Apostle Paul's warning, their faith and everything associated with that faith would eventually unravel. The trade-in of the real Jesus would give them a kind of domesticated Jesus. A Jesus who perhaps was Lord of some things, but not Lord of everything. This is why Colossians is so important for the church today. A church in a world full of pluralistic ideologies, philosophies and religions of all all competing for our attention, all competing for our devotion. To their credit, Colossae was a church that had to find its way in the world of its day. 
without the advantage of all the background knowledge that we Christians have today. Without the advantage of centuries of Christian civilization. Without the advantage of having the full canon of scripture that you and I benefit from. They had to survive the attacks of the enemy without all, all kinds of commentaries and, and theological devotional materials and all kinds of things. you imagine what we benefit from today? This church didn't have them. So they needed the Apostle Paul to write this precious, precious letter to them. Did they not? Because they were bombarded by a syncretistic mindset that said, yes, you can have Jesus. But look what else you can have as well. Just add a sprinkling of of this philosophy. Just add a a, a little hint of of that mindset and, and bang it all together in the mix. And just imagine how much stronger your faith is going to be. I can only imagine it being an extraordinarily strong temptation for a young church. And you would think, of course, understanding something of the history of the Christian church for, for nigh on 2,000 years, we, 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 would, we would handle these kinds of temptations well, wouldn't you? These wouldn't be an issue for us today at all, would they? Classy was part of a first century missionary church, actually, that, that outlived, outthought, and outdied its contemporary world, believe it or not. And they passed on the baton of faith in such a way that we can only conclude that they took to heart the Apostle Paul's letter, his teaching in this epistle, as thus saith the Lord. How we need God to raise up today men and women of God, men and women of faith, who will speak the word of God with a holy boldness and in such a way and with such authority that the church will sit up and say, wow, this is as thus saith the Lord. And then perhaps like Colossi, we will outlive, outthink and outdie our contemporary society and pass on a baton of faith, a legacy that's worth passing. We've just celebrated the 2016 Olympic Games. I enjoy watching sport when I get the chance, especially athletics. I used to do a little bit of running in my early years. I ran for the civil service 100 and 200 metres when I was young, fit and healthy. Goodness, what happened. And, uh, and so I enjoy watching athletics. Generally speaking, at the majority of athletics meetings, the last event on the track is the relay race. Usually the 400 metres relay race. How important it is for the team to get the baton round. They might have the fastest runners. That's important. But there's something even more important than mere speed. It is the ability to hand on the back. Nothing more tragic, nothing more frustrating than watching our our relay team <laughs> with all the speed <laughs> fail because they fail to pass on the back. 
And I have to say, reflecting upon the life of the Christian church in the Free West these last 30, 40 years, I can only comment on that much. It seems to me that from the last one or two generations, the church has failed. For all its advances in theological understanding, for all of its uh, blessed richness in, in commentary and devotional material, for all its speed of thought and mind, it has failed in this yes, yes. to pass on the baton. Yes. As we understand it, the Word of God it's become watered down. And we've embraced maybe little trickles at times, but it's become more significant. Little heresies here and there, truths and half-truths. And, and we've embraced traditions. Our traditions have become more important than the very Word of God itself. How sad. And so we've become embroiled with all these things. Syncretism has been knocking on our door. And we've welcomed it in. And for all the richness of our heritage, certainly my generation of Christian, I believe, has failed to pass on the baton. How sad. So as we read Colossians, you have to be impressed by a church that, in spite of all of its difficulties, clearly read, understood, meditated upon, and took to heart what the Apostle Paul wrote. Because brethren, they continued in their faith into the second, third, fourth centuries plus and passed on the battle. Colossians, of course, was written by Paul whilst he was in Rome around about 64 A.D., as he sent out the letter to the Colossians, he was a busy boy because he probably also sent out two other epistles at the same time at the hand of Tychicus. The letter to the Ephesians and the letter to Philemon. When you get the chance, it's a fascinating study to put all three letters side by side and read them. Gives a tremendous insight into what was on the Apostle Paul's heart and his passion for the church. Oh God, raise up men and women who have a passion for the church today like the Apostle Paul had in his day. Too many scholars, theologians, too many ministers and pastors are falling out of love with the church. Not essentially out of love with the Lord because our Lord is not a disappointment, is he? <laughs> He never, never falters. He never fails. He's always the same, the immutable one, the same yesterday, today and forevermore. Entirely consistent. It's always a pleasure to turn to him. But ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ are falling out of love with the church. I'll even give you a statistic to prove it. There's been a survey done in the, in the United States of America. Some say we're not far behind. And in the last ten years, of, the, of those who went through theological training, biblical seminary or, or Bible college, after 
Within three years, 66% of those ministers who entered the ministry had come out of the ministry. 66%. Two-thirds. We need men and women of God who are committed to the Christian church today as Paul was in his day. That's... That's not easy because it's, it's a bruising battle. And we understand something of how the, the church weighed heavy upon the Apostle Paul's heart, don't we? And it, it does weigh heavy. And it, it is hard work. And, uh, well, to dwell above with those we love, that's going to be just glory. But brethren, to stay below with those we know, it's a different story. <laughs> The Apostle Paul wrote from Rome in about 64 through 66 AD three letters to the Colossians, the Ephesians, and to Philemon. You read them side by side. You get a glimpse of a heart of a man of God who was passionate for the church. He understood the context. He understood the reality of how the enemy was trying to get in to cause this wonderful Christian movement to falter and to fail even before it got out of the first century. And he did what he could to exhort the Christian church. Colossians is the 51st book of the Bible. It only has four chapters. only has four chapters. The more I've looked into it, the more I've realized we could be here for a few years. I can't get beyond a verse at a time. That's not very reassuring for you, is it? I understand that. But, uh, um, we'll see how it goes, but it's going to be a bit of a battle. We'll, I'll try and be as succinct as I can in subsequent weeks, but you'll see. Just four chapters, 95 verses, and in the original Greek text, 1,998 words. There is just one question. There are 92 verses of history and three verses of unfulfilled prophecy. The book is divided into two main divisions. There's a doctrinal section, that's in chapter 1, verse 1, through to chapter 2, verse 3. And then very quickly the Apostle Paul goes into a practical section, chapter 2, verse 4, right through to the end. Very typical of the Apostle Paul. He wasn't just a theologian, he wasn't a mere academic. He wasn't a mere historian. He was a very practical man. And he always sought to be practical with his ministry, didn't he? That's how we need to be these days. And the key verse is the verse that we've read. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends upon human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. I am convinced, my dear friends, certainly here in the free West, that the church slowly but surely has become captive to so many hollow and deceptive philosophies. We have the truth, but we've tacked on to the truth. So much nonsense. So much truth, uh, half-truth and lies. And so this letter, if we listen to it, will provide challenge, inspiration and a renewed focus to keep on living for Christ in our generation. There's a contemporary chorus we used to sing, I want to serve the purpose of God in my generation. Why? Because it's, it's important that we do. 
this generation of Christian is responsible, brethren, before Almighty God for this generation of heathen. One day, you and I, I will give an account. I won't give an account for those heathens, those pagans, those unsaved of the 1940s and 50s and 60s. Some of us here might, but I won't. But I will give an account for those of the 1960s, 70s and 80s. Oh yes. I want to serve the purposes of God in my generation. The church is always one generation away. Absolutely correct. The church is always only one generation away. So we need to be encouraged as we study this epistle to the Colossian church because in it we discover the resources that we need to live for Jesus in our world today. It's an increasingly syncretistic, pluralistic and polytheistic world. And it was tough for Paul in his day, equally so for us. And so that's why how this particular epistle is extraordinarily pertinent to 2016-17. So next time, it's a fortnight's time, because next week we have a missionary, we're going to consider, perhaps I'll perhaps get into the first two verses of chapter 1. We won't get any further than that, I promise you. So Colossians chapter 1, verse first two verses, we're going to consider Christian identity. Christian identity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our introduction to this epistle. Help us to get our head around the context, and so therefore understand more fully the actual content. We thank you for the Apostle Paul, for men like him, throughout the history of the Christian Church. And we are sorry in so many ways that today we have faltered and failed, and we have become embroiled in, in syncretistic thought and mindset. Have mercy upon us, Lord, your church. Have mercy, Lord. Forgive us, Lord. As the hymn said, restore us, Lord. Revive your church again. Let justice flow like rivers, righteousness like a never-failing stream. These days are dark, and dark days need a church that is full of light, a church that stands upon the Word of God and speaks the truth without apology. Your church has lost that cutting edge. Have mercy, Lord. In these days, we pray that you might raise us up, your church as a mighty army on your bidding, that once again, we might wield this, the double-edged sword, the word of God, without apology, without us bowing down to, to modern ideologies and to political correctness. We might wield the word of God, the double-edged sword, that it might penetrate deep into hearts and lives. And, Lord, bring people back to Jesus. Father, you said in your word, He, Lord, that that you you will pour water upon him who is thirsty. We're thirsty, Father, for the truth. Water upon him who is thirsty floods upon the dry ground. Oh, Trachlan, it's so dry. It's parched. So move in these days as we declare the word of God, double-edged sword, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.